You're listening to The Scope. Today we're talking about the different types of cancer, risk factors, and prevention. Let's get started. Hi everybody, I'm your host Paige Heitman. The Scope podcast is produced on a regular basis and can be found by visiting phelpshealth.org. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your SoundCloud stream or subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All links can also be found in the show notes. Now let's get into our show. Today our guest is Mara Hofer, an oral oncology specialty pharmacist at the Phelps Health Delbert Day Cancer Institute, also known as the DDCI. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you've never been on our show before. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, So a little bit about myself. Um, You know, I'm a hometown girl from St. James, Missouri. I did my training uh, for school in St. Louis, Missouri at St. Louis College of Pharmacy. Um, And then I did a first year residency at Christian Hospital. And then I did a second year residency and then my palliative care fellowship at Dana-Farber. And I was part of the Harvard Interprofessional Palliative Care Fellowship Program, uh, which was a once in a lifetime experience. And so now here, I run the oral oncolytic program at the Delbert Day Cancer Institute. So you say Harvard, so you were in Boston, right? Yes, I was in Boston. How did you get to be part of that program? Um, So it was part of a residency opportunity that I got. um, And I just, it was, the stars really aligned. It was a one, one of a kind position, one in the world. So I feel really lucky that I was able for that opportunity and just the experiences that I had while I was there and the people that I know from it um, are really just irreplaceable. Yeah, that's incredible. And the fact that we get to have you now at the DDCI after having had those experiences, that's really special. I I feel really lucky that I can bring things that I've learned at a huge name brand institution uh, to people that I grew up with and I can really serve uh, the community that's really uh, raised me. Yeah, that makes a big difference. So a couple of questions I want to ask before we really get into our topic today of oncology chemotherapy program is... What even is an oral chemotherapy program? A lot of people have never heard of that before, right? Sure, yeah, it's um, that's a great question. And I think when I have a new patient, (laughs) that's something I go over. Yeah. Uh, So when they're thinking about new formulations, um, something that's easier for people to take instead of coming in and getting it either through a vein in their arm or um, what they call a port, uh, you know, every month, every two weeks, it's sometimes easier for them just to take a daily pill. Um, there's a few different formulations. Some are like traditional chemotherapies, some are newer um, immunotherapy options, and some are kind of in their own category of pharmacology, like genomics mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, so we have over 400 agents right now, wow. right? And it, they typically have, depending on the agent, depending on the disease state, they typically have less side effects. They're showing really great results in a lot of areas, and it's just furthering the oncology field. Um, So that kind of brings up a a great question too. What is an oral chemo agent for treatment options? Sure. So one of the more common ones I have, I'll just give you an example of Mm -hmm. one. So um, I think that people, people's conception of what cancer is, Mm -hmm. is so complicated to explain because there's so many different parts and each cancer and each person is so unique Mm -hmm. and so different. So their treatment plans may not reflect you know, what their neighbor had or things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, so for a few of our solid tumors that we can see in like colorectal cancer and things like that, we use like capecitabine, which is actually a drug that we use in a pump 
Okay. Um, that's a that's an IV drug, but when you take it by the mouth, it doesn't turn into the IV drug until it gets metabolized by your liver. So that's just an example of one. Um, and so my job is just to help people get the medication and pay for it because typically these drugs are pretty expensive, unfortunately. Yeah, it doesn't sound cheap. No. <laughs> Manage side effects and then just make sure that they take the medication appropriately. So what are some of the other roles of an oncology pharmacist in a cancer center like the DDCI? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, along with those responsibilities, so there's three uh, pharmacists, all really love, two other love, really, really lovely and brilliant women that I work with who are extremely talented. And they uh, run the infusion part of the DDCI, and I get the privilege of helping out with that. So when people come in and think of traditional chemotherapies, and immunotherapies, um, and they're getting them through the vein, that's what they do. So whenever you say immunotherapy, what does that mean? So immunotherapy, that's a great question. So it's so interesting. So now we have agents that can, in a variety of different ways, it's a very simplistic way of explaining it, can actually arm your immune system to naturally fight the cancer. There's many ways cancer evades your natural immune system. We, our bodies wanna naturally fight it, but the cancer will either hide from it or uh, not have any uh, receptors to link on to or things like that. So the immunotherapies will arm your immune system okay. in order to fight the cancer. Oh, wow. So Isn't that the, so fascinating? Yeah, so the cancer can't like essentially hide, Yes, right? yeah. So how is that different from like traditional radiation type of treatments? So radiation is gonna be more of like a spot treatment. They're okay. gonna, um, uh, are really, talented team will um, will get your scans and they'll okay. map them out and then they will uh, radiate specific parts and that will directly kill cancer cells. This is actually just um, arming your immune system mm -hmm. to attack the cancer. And traditional chemotherapies, um, when you think of people getting chemo, right, and they have all those horrible side effects, we don't see as much of those with immunotherapies because they're not attacking every single cell. Mm -hmm. They're armed specifically towards either the immune system or the cancer cells themselves. Okay, so let's dumb this down just a little bit more just for me. for like Absolutely, no, 100%. It's so, complicated. Yes, yeah, it's incredibly fascinating yeah. too. So whenever somebody is getting chemo radiation, does it kill all of the cells in that specific area? Is that how it works? Oh my gosh, you're asking me such a great question. So it's, when if you're getting them together, mm -hmm. um, so some of the medications that we will give you will actually help the radiation work better. Um, it, it's called synergy. It helps both attack better than they would be on their own or to and, uh, enhance the way that the radiation is working in your body. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. That's something that I didn't know. Oh, it's so fascinating. How would you, how would you know? Like, yeah. it's incredible. So how can somebody know whenever they go in and they have been diagnosed with cancer, what their treatment options are. Do they get to choose or is it kind of the, the decision is made for them? So I think that our, we have two providers, Dr. Wong and Dr. Guerrero, um, and then our two really awesome nurse practitioners who work under them. They do a really great job of every single patient determining what is gonna be best for them with the patient. Yeah, because it's different for everybody. Yeah, so they, I they will lay out six or seven options mm -hmm. if, if those options are available for them. Unfortunately, sometimes in some cases, you may only have one option or really a mm -hmm. strong recommendation. But if, if there's more options available, they'll lay everything out and kind of talk through the 
pros and cons of everything. So you're a part of your healthcare decision and you're, you're on our team. We're on your team. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one thing that I really love about the DDCI. And I mentioned that before we start the show, the DDCI is such a cool team because you guys are a family. Yeah. I think that's really special. What are some of the most prevalent forms of cancer in our specific area? So we have uh, breast, uh, prostate, lung, colorectal are the ones that we see the most frequently. Um, we see a lot of pancreatic and we see a few different kind of blood disorders such as multiple myeloma as well. Does a patient need a referral to see a provider at the DDC? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. So um, we don't necessarily need a uh, referral. Mm -hmm. However, if you think that you could benefit from treatment um, at the DDCI, either from a hematologic standpoint, so if you have low iron, if you are struggling with something like that, or if you think you have a more malignancy uh, issue, just please contact your um, primary care provider and they will help you walk through the steps of getting to the DCI. Okay, yeah. what is a malignancy? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, malignancy is just a really fancy word for um, tumors mm -hmm. or uh, it's cancer. Okay, so just something that you think is out of the normal for your body yeah, type of thing. absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So we talked before about some of these risk factors for cancer and you mentioned smoking. Are there any other risk factors that people should be on the lookout for? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, so let's just go through some of the more popular mm -hmm. uh, cancer types. And then we will talk about the risk factors and kind of the prevention. Okay. Um, the biggest one and the most highly recommended, well-known recommendations for prevention and risk factors is breast cancer. Uh, one of the biggest risk factors for a few different types of breast cancer is we have genetic factors, the family history of first and second degree relatives, um, in part an increased risk. Early onset breast cancer in a family member is suggestive. You're predisposed to it, so that means you can get it a lot easier. It the, your risk will increase over the age of 60. Um, it almost doubles after you turn 60. Wow. Yeah. So let's take a second and step oh, sure. back and talk about first and second degree relatives, because we talked about this in a previous podcast that obviously you weren't on. Sure. <laughs> so first degree relative would be like my mother or sibling. Yes. And then second degree relative could be like a grandparent. Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure that I understand that. So if I'm going in and I have concerns and they ask, do you have a first or second degree relative? I can appropriately answer that question. That's a great question. And that's a great clarification. Yeah, you nailed it. Okay, perfect. Awesome. So okay. another thing that uh, if put you at a higher risk for breast mm -hmm. cancer is that you're increased estrogen exposure. Okay. So if you start menstruating, um, especially early, or if you go uh -huh. into a really late menopause, it's going to increase your overall estrogen exposure over your life. Okay. Um, which can put you at a higher risk for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, obesity is a big one. Um, we also see a lot of benign breast disease. So if you've ever had a lump that's been biopsied, lumps are very, very common. Over 90% of lumps are benign, but it does put you at a higher risk. The more biopsies you have, the higher risk of developing breast cancer. Okay. Have, which is very interesting. That is very interesting. Yes. Is there like a certain threshold for number or is it just the fact that if you've had multiple ones? It's, um, the risk will increase the more that you have, mm -hmm. but you walk that tightrope, right? So if you've had a lot of um, benign lumps in your life, you never want to ignore a lump. Mm -hmm. um, you so should always get it checked out. 100%. Even if you know that you've had benign ones in the past, it's still important to have a biopsy, even though that can increase your risk. Better safe than sorry, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
And then if you have really, really dense breast tissue, which is not something people can control. Uh, so, and then alcohol. So it has a 7% increase uh, risk for each um, additional drink that you consume a day. Uh, and then uh, birth control is something I get asked a lot if it increases your risk about uh, with breast cancer. It's kind of controversial. There's some studies out there suggesting that there's an epidemiologic increase within mm -hmm. different patient populations, but um, the evidence is neither here nor there about it. Okay, so you're still safe to take birth control as a fan. Yes, <laughs> yes, please take your birth control <laughs> if deemed appropriate for yes. you. Uh -huh. um, to prevent it, you can, there's lower risk associated with greater physical activity in both pre and postmenopausal women. A breast awareness. Um, knowing kind of what your breast tissue feels like. If you want to do a self-exam, do it the week after your um, period. And then mammograms um, are, in, are recommended in everyone over 40 years old every year, um, and, which I know is not very fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, preventive care. Yes, absolutely. Saves lives. Yes. And then um, if you're extremely high risk, you may be put on a medication to help prevent breast cancer. What would that type of medication be? I don't know that I've ever heard of that. Yeah, so if patients are at a high risk or that they've had um, very, very early stage breast cancer and they don't want to go through chemotherapy, they may be put on a medication called tamoxifen or an astrazole or letrozole. Um, it, these medications will help block estrogen production and help um, reduce those hormones in your body. Uh, so those hormones won't be used for food for the cancer. So you have a lower chance of reducing it. That's very interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, that's really oh, good cancer to know. So I would fascinating. never heard of that before. Oh yeah, and those are really, really high risk. You know, people who are going to have prophylactic mastectomies because they have specific genes and things like that. That's not for people like you and ho or like hopefully for you and yes. hopefully for me. Uh, yeah, but it's good to know for people who are maybe struggling with this that they have options. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And those always talk to your doctor about, mm -hmm. and they may not be right for you. Let's talk about a few more other ones. Um, prostate cancer, uh, the only recommendations to prevent and to treat are digital rectal exams and PSA laboratory tests every year and periodically. Those aren't fun either. Yes. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had one. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and in lung disease, there's no effective method uh, for prevention except for stopping smoking. That's the only thing you can do. Even if you already have a lung disease or if you already have lung cancer it's so beneficial for every organ in your body to stop smoking yeah what's really cool is um, organizations like phelps health before covid we had smoking cessation classes where we would help you learn how to stop smoking yes. which is really cool and not just phelps health but i'm sure there are plenty of other resources that can help you with that absolutely so definitely take advantage of, of things like that right oh 100 yeah and if you are questioning um, how to stop smoking, if you're contemplating it, thinking it might be time, um, please reach out to your provider, reach out to me, I'd be happy to walk you through it. Um, yeah, great resources here. Yes, sure. absolutely. Yeah, we're very, very lucky. And then the last one, the uh, kind of the biggest one that we see mm -hmm. is colon and rectal cancer. Um, the, there's been some evidence showing that diet adjustments may lower your risk with vitamin supplementation, increased calcium and vitamin D intake with high fiber, um, and then screening over, if you're older than 45 to 50, you're going to get a colonoscopy every year. Those recommendations will change based on your risk. Mm -hmm. And colonoscopies aren't fun either. Sure. But. Important. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of preventive types of screenings aren't always fun, sure. but they're very important to get. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I, if it was my family member and I tried to treat every patient like they're my family member, I would 
um, always want them to know what's going on, um, mm-hmm. what I call under the hood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good way to yeah. describe that. You want an engine that runs well, Yeah, right? you want an engine that runs well. You don't want to have any questions. Um, mm-hmm. And you, I mean, safer than sorry, exactly what you said. Yeah, absolutely. If you check engine light is on, you need to go figure out what's happening. 100%. Yes, that is a great way to put that. I love that analogy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, we're done with the boring you know, you say that's boring. I think that's really important to, to talk about preventive care because it also makes me think about why, and we mentioned this so many times in our podcast, how important having a primary care physician is and having that connection with your care team. Yes. And with the new implementation of my chart and ethic, people really have the ability to take their care into their own hands now. Oh, they can see their appointments, they can schedule them themselves, they can go in and actually look at their medical records which is really cool. So they can kind of see more under the hood than maybe they were able to before. Absolutely. And it's, it's like we mentioned before, we want everyone to be on the same team. We want the patient mm-hmm. to be a part of the team. And if you are struggling finding a new primary care provider, we have so many providers taking on new patients right now. Yes, absolutely. So whenever you were talking about all these different um, ways to prevent these top types of cancer, it made me think of a question. What types of lifestyle changes are recommended for somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer because their life has already been rocked in a million different ways whenever they find out that they have a diagnosis? Sure. Um, That's a really great question. So lifestyle changes, it's hard to recommend generally across the board. It depends on who you are, your functional state, Mm -hmm. um, if you are having any symptoms from your cancer and things like that. I always recommend increased activity and to... um, improve diets. I think that both those things can always be done no matter who you are. Um, no one's cancer is their fault, uh, but to stop smoking, um, increase fiber, uh, uh, increase your mental health. So I'm a really big proponent of meditation. There's great literature showing that meditation and cancer patients can help reduce anxiety and stress and maybe suggest better outcomes. Um, so that's, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I love that. I'm really into meditation, too. I have a couple of different meditation apps. Um, Sometimes I do really good. Sometimes I don't. (laughs) Well, there's one that's been um, actually developed for cancer patients. It's called Headspace. It's a man who um, had cancer and beat his cancer with meditation. And so if you're a cancer patient, um, you should be able to get it for free. Yeah, that's a really great resource. So we're running a little short on time, but there's one more question that I would love to ask about this. Should cancer patients and survivors get the flu shot? And why is that so important? Oh, that's a great question. It's so topical with our time right now. So I think that yes, 100% cancer patients and cancer survivors should get the flu shot. When you're going through active chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. um, your doctor or oncologist may recommend against it, especially if it's a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to be on chemotherapy um, or radiation for a long period of time, the benefits are really going to outweigh the risks. And preventing the flu is so important when you're healthy. Uh, so when you're immunocompromised, which means that you're able to get sicker a lot easier, it's just so much more important there. Absolutely. Great answer to that. Mara, thank you so much for being on our thank show so today. Much for we learned me. so much. This was awesome. It, felt, it went by so fast. It really did. Yeah, this is fantastic. I can't wait to have you back on our oh, show. Oh, thank you. I'd love to come back. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into The Scope. If you liked our show and would like to know more, check out FuffsHealth.org.